Well, I have done plenty of dumb things, but this was by far one of the dumbest. Okay, this, this was a couple of years ago. Patrick and I, we, we went together, I don't know, team building or, or whatever. Um, I'm not really sure what possessed us, but we, we decided to, to do this. And it was, I mean, without a doubt, one of the most, you know, exhilarating, terrible, horrifying, you know, adrenaline-soaked moments of my, of my life, right? I mean, it's, it's intense. And on the one hand, it was, it was great. On the other, it was, you know, it's terrible, right? So we made our, our climb to, to 10,000 feet. We're in this plane that is little more than a, a junked out smart car with wings, okay? And we're all just kind of crammed in there. And the only way for me to maneuver around, um, I mean, there are five of us in there. If you can kind of picture, okay, five of us all together with the pilot. The only way I can move or maneuver around is on my knees, okay? Uh, so there I am kneeling, right? Um, when in, inwardly, I'm beginning to panic, and since I was already there, right, kneeling is the perfect position for prayer, um, I, I, began, I began to pray, but you know what my first thought in my mind was in that moment? Well, Nathan, you're an idiot. God's not going to listen to you. I mean, I mean, it was almost as if, it was probably the closest I've ever come to hearing the audible voice of God. I mean, I, I didn't, but it was that close where it was almost like I said, you know, God, keep me safe. Safe! Then don't jump out of the plane. It's like, what is wrong with you? I mean, this is what I'm hearing from God, right? What is wrong with you? And it's sort of a concluding with, uh, you're on your own. <laughs> and that, that was really comforting, right? Seconds before uh, having to, to jump. And so the, the door opens and, you know, the wind and the, the noise, the cold air blowing through and the terror. And uh, I'll never forget that, that feeling of, of falling, right? Of just sort of tumbling through the air, finally straightening up and, you know, hitting our max speed, they say, of about 120 miles per hour. And we fell for 60 seconds. You know, one Mississippi, <laughs> two Mississippi. And, and I remember then, too, like, looking around, I'm like, man, it is, we're south, south of Harrisonville. It's just beautiful. You can just see for miles. But even that happy thought was immediately followed by, well, enjoy it. It could be the last thing you ever see, <laughs> right, as the earth races towards my body like a bullet train, right? Closer, closer, closer. You see, I, I'm kind of a control person, okay? Believe it or not. Um, some of you know that very acutely with me. Uh, and I know, I know that control is an illusion, um, but it's one that I, I want to hold on to, right? To hold on to a feeling of independence or of self-protection or being able to kind of chart my own course. But what do you hold on to when you're falling through the air? There's nothing. No, nothing to grab, nothing to slow yourself down or to, to sort of stabilize yourself. There is, you're just, you're just falling. And I think in some ways that was one of the scariest parts for me. It wasn't just the prospect of death. It, it was the 60 seconds, maybe the only 60 seconds of my life, right, of having absolutely nothing to hold on to and not, a, not an ounce of control. And, I mean, of course, the prospect of death, too. But what do you hold on to in those moments? And, and even though most of us, most of you will never go skydiving, right? You're smarter than that. Um, many of you know exactly how I felt, right? Falling, out of control, things just sort of going crazy. Maybe it's with your, with your relationships, um, spiraling out of control, 
Maybe it's with your health or your finances or your, your work or your family. What do you hold on to? Tumbling through the air, grasping at anything to right us, to make us feel at least, to at least feel like we're in control, to feel safe or important or, or happy. We grab at, at money and approval. We grab family and clothes and sports and sex, whatever, whatever we can, right, to, to sort of make ourselves feel like life is worth living. And we end up like that foolish skydiver, skydiver grasping at air to slow himself down. I mean, we're all holding on to something, aren't we? Trusting something. Young, old, Christian, not a Christian, it doesn't really matter. All of us are holding on to, to something, trusting something. Our lives are built on trust. We trust because everything tells us promises. Everything, everyone promises something to us. But what promise do you hold on to? So we've been studying the New Testament book of Hebrews, right? And we've said it's, it's probably originated as, a, as an ancient sermon preached to this ancient small church that's struggling, right? They're, they're drifting. We've been talking about them for the last couple of months to, together. And, and he's been talking about how Jesus is, is better than everything, right? That's the overall message of Hebrews. He's better. You just cannot do better than Jesus. And, and he started off then kind of transitioning, talking about how Jesus is the better high priest, that, that he is our ultimate access to God. We're in the midst of this long section about Jesus as the high priest, but we haven't actually really talked about that yet um, because he kind of went in another way, right, uh, for a little bit. We, we said it was almost like he started this high priest thing. He looked up at the congregation, realized that nobody cared, um, and realized that he, he had to talk about something else before he could get to the, to the high priest. Okay, last week and this week are the other things that he's talking about, it's sort of his own little rabbit trail, if you will. Last week specifically, it was, it was warning them about the danger of falling away. We said that some of us are faking it and we don't even know it. Well, this week continues that thought. But instead of focusing on our role, he focuses on God's role in our rescue. And he encourages them. And if you're here last week, it's much needed encouragement and the fear of possibly falling away from Jesus. He encourages them and us that God's promise of rescue is sure. That it's, it's really the only thing that we can possibly hold on to and depend on. And, and life, life will make you lots of promises. So what do you hold on to? It's all about trust, isn't it? And this morning, in these few verses, we learn three things about trust. First of all, that trust is a relationship. Second, that trust is never easy. And finally, that trust is an anchor for the soul. First of all, trust is a relationship. I mean, think about it. It makes sense, doesn't it? A promise is only good as the person, only as good as the person making the promise. And our ability to trust that promise is only as good as the relationship we have with the one who does the promising, right? I mean, that's, that's how all, all of our relationships work that way. So who is the one who makes incredible promises? Let's read a few of these verses here. Last week, if 
Uh, We ended in in chapter 6, verse 12 of Hebrews, and we were encouraged to imitate the faith of, of others who have gone before. And specifically now, he gets to who he wants us to imitate. It's Abraham. Let's read, beginning with Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, it's a mouthful, right? But, it, but it's rich. So who's the one making the promises? It's God, right? Hey, you probably already knew that. Big surprise, we're, we're talking about God. This is church after all. But what do we learn about God here? I mean, if, if trust is a relationship, it's based on the one making, making the promises. So what does he say about him? Well, first of all, There's lots here. First of all, I'm just amazed, honestly, that God promises anything. I mean, we get kind of used to it, right? We we read all these promises in Scripture, and we kind of sort of take them for granted. But it is amazing that the God of the universe would make a promise. Because a a promise indebts the promiser to the promisee. You follow that, right? I mean, parents, if you promise your kids ice cream, you now owe them ice cream. You didn't know them ice cream before, but now you do. And the God who is obligated to nothing, the one who created the universe with a word, who owes us nothing, willingly puts himself into our debt. I mean, think about that. Think about, I mean, there are hundreds of promises in Scripture made for you, and God who owes you nothing now owes you everything that he's promised. I mean, don't, don't overlook how incredibly gracious that is. But can he be trusted? Well, when God promises, it says he swears by himself. Do you see that there? It kind of sounds a little bit strange to us, I think. Uh, but back then, if you made a contract or an oath, that's, that's what you would do. You would swear by someone or something greater than yourself. Kind of like if we were to say, you know, I swear on a stack of Bibles, right? It's meant to, to kind of up the ante of the, the veracity of what's, of what's going on. But what does God swear by? I mean, there's no one or no thing greater than him. And so God swears by himself. He raises the ante to the very top. But that still doesn't make his promises worth holding on to. And yet twice here, He mentions God's unchangeable character. Think about that for a second. There is no one and no thing in the history of the universe that can make that claim. Everything changes. I mean, I I couldn't even decide what to have for breakfast this morning. We're we're fickle, right? We're always changing our mind, thinking through different things. But this, this God who has no beginning and has no end, has never and will never change. 
And the author makes it even clearer in chapter 11, or chapter 13. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to change his mind on his promises. Ever. And one more thing. I mean, God can do everything, right? He can do, he can do anything he wants. I mean, we, we believe that. That's, it's part of our creeds. And yet, here there's something he can't do. It sounds like heresy, doesn't it? That's, that's what it says, verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. It's likely, likely that your friends and your kids and your spouse and your parents and your coworkers and your boss and the strangers you meet, it is likely that they will lie to you. But it's, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. And yet, none of this means that any of us will actually trust him. Because trust is a relationship. Your your trust in another person is always commensurate to the relationship you have with them. Faith isn't merely an, an adherence to a set of doctrines. It's trust in a person. It's commitment to a relationship. And you will never trust a God you don't have a relationship with. I mean, it's very easy, right? For, for some of us, we, we freak out when difficulties hit us. And I'm, I'm not making light of those things. Life is, is hard and, and we panic sometimes. And in those moments, right, we, we ask so often, where is God? But if you've never taken the time to actually get to know this God and just see experientially how trustworthy he actually is, then of course you're going to doubt his promises when life falls apart. What do you expect? So before we move on here, ask yourself. Again, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, ask yourself, or maybe carve out some time later this week, which of God's promises do you find most difficult to believe? What are the hardest ones? For me this week, when I wrote that question in my notes, I mean, the, the answer came instantly into my mind. It didn't take me hard, long, long at all to figure out. But the, the two promises for me that I'm most likely to doubt, one is that God could actually accept me through Jesus. That I, I really, truly have nothing left to prove and nothing left to hide. I find that really hard to believe. And the second one is, is that God actually is enough for me. That I need nothing else to satisfy me. Man, those are hard promises, aren't they? Hard for me anyway. And yet the more I get to know him, the more I grow in relationship with him, whether it's by by spending time alone with him or reading my Bible, praying, or, or hanging out with others who have met him, the deeper my relationship with him gets, the easier it becomes to trust him. To look at those things in my life and say, well, man, Maybe God actually does accept me. Maybe that promise is true. Maybe he really is enough for me. Maybe that promise is actually true. And you know, the opposite of trusting God isn't merely just sort of like, you know, doing your own thing. I mean, that's what we kind of think, right? I'm either, I'm either a person who kind of follows God, right? Maybe say religious or something like that, or I'm not. I just, I just do whatever I want. But that's, 
that's not really a, a fair, fair dichotomy, right? Because you also, all of us, are trusting something. It's human nature. Someone or something else that, that we are holding on to. Everyone here is believing promises. Probably lots of them from lots of different sources. Money promises to make me feel safe. Food and sex promise to, to make us feel good and happy. And, and family and work promise to make us feel important as long as we don't screw it up. So what are you holding on to? But you know, if I'm honest, deep down, I mean, there are plenty of times when I still think that God is a liar. I mean, if I'm honest, right? Or, or at least in the way that I live out my, my life. Plenty of times when there is something else that I'm holding on to to give me what God promises to give me. Which kind of leads us to the, the second thing here. Of course we struggle. Trust is never easy. And this is where the example of Abraham comes in to the text. I mean, Abraham in the Bible, he's like the poster child for faith, okay? Uh, he comes up all over the place, all the New Testaments. He's sort of the ideal in many ways. And it's, it's so easy to, to glamorize him. But if we know his story, as, as the, the first century readers knew his story, we'd see it's messy. It, it was painful. At times, it was, it was excruciating and long. I mean, if you, if you don't know the story of Abraham, I mean, he was 75 years old when he first met God. He and his wife had, had never been able to have children. And in that moment, as a 75-year-old, God says, I will make you a father of many, a father of many nations. And everyone on earth will be blessed because of you. It's a big promise. It's like, all right, yeah. Well, how long did Abraham have to wait to even see a glimmer of that promise come through? 25 years. And even then, all he saw was one child, the promise. Talk about lame, right? I mean, if I can say something that a pastor probably shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it anyway, it seems like in the Bible, in this story, sometimes in my own life, it seems like God almost always overpromises and underdelivers, doesn't it? I mean, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Because, yeah, I mean, God does come through. Don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not, I'm not casting down on that. I mean, God does come through in a big way for Abraham. I mean, that one child would become the, the father of the entire Jewish nation, and Abraham's great, 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 whatever grandchild would be Jesus, from whom all the earth could find blessing. And Paul says in the New Testament that everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is now part of Abraham's family. That, that we've been grafted into that. And there are Christians from every nation on the globe. So yes, God came through for his promise. But Abraham didn't see any of that. One kid, after waiting 25 years, I can't even hardly wait for 25 seconds. But isn't that just like God? And we often just receive a taste 
of the promises that he makes to us. So of course, trust isn't easy. A few chapters later, the author, he'll, he'll get back talking about Abraham again. This is in chapter 11 now. He says, these all, talking about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, the, the patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Still, he never gave up waiting. Never gave up waiting. And it doesn't mean that his story is perfect, right? I mean, we could dig a little bit deeper. There's those two big lies he tells to, to save his skin early on. I mean, not exactly trust, trusting God. Or, or the fact, I mean, the big one, right, that he kind of knocks up his wife's servant, thinking, well, God made a promise, and maybe this is the way that I can fulfill that promise. And so he takes matters into his own hands, right, and has, has Ishmael through Hagar, not exactly trusting God. This is the poster child of faith. It's messy. And of course, Abraham struggled. But he kept believing. He kept waiting. I mean, I mean the biggest story of that is, is really the one that's specifically being referenced here uh, in, in chapter 6 of Hebrews. I mean, we're, we're talking about God swearing by something greater than himself. That happened in Genesis 22. It's this crazy story. If you've not read it, I'd, you should sometime. Uh, it's where God asks Abraham to prove that his faith isn't fake. He, he asks him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. Crazy enough that God would ask him to do that. Crazier still is that Abraham actually goes off to to do it. And so Abraham, he puts God's promise in physical form, his only son there on the altar. God's promise. And he raises the knife, ready, ready to do it. And it says that it's because Abraham so believed in God's promise, so trusted him, that he knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead and continue the promise, even if he went through with this. And so God stopped the whole thing, right? Abraham passed the test kind of there in the last moment. It's a hard story. It's a confusing story. But don't think for a moment that it was an easy story. Trust is never easy. So ask yourself, how am I getting ready to wait how am, I, how am I getting ready to, to struggle, to, to face difficulties? God's promises always require patience. Any promise requires patience. The trouble is I'm terrible at waiting. I mean, I'm, I'm too conditioned by, by fast food and easy credit, instant movies and two-day shipping to, to wait for anything. I mean, we, right, we believe, don't we, that anything worth having must be had at once. Because nearly everything else in our lives works that way. Everything but God. And the hard part, of course, is that some of us have been waiting for a really, really, really long time. Maybe it's health concern or a problem with a child or a relationship, and you've been praying and praying and praying, and it hurts. But what are you going to hold on to? 
God's timing rarely matches ours, and I almost never understand what he's doing in the moment. But what am I going to hold on to? You see, in our mindset, suffering seems so antithetical to the promises of God, doesn't it? But if you walk with Jesus long enough in relationship with him, he will ask you to do or face something hard. Something that seems impossible, downright unbearable. But what will you hold on to? And think about this ancient church 2,000 years ago, right? They've been waiting for Jesus to return. He had promised that he was coming back soon. It had been a long time already. They're grown discouraged. And the persecution there is beginning to, to heat up. Jesus promised them life abundant. Of course they're discouraged. And yet they keep waiting. Are you ready to wait? Well, one of my favorite things as a parent right now, uh, is reading Narnia uh, to my kids. I just, I love it. I love these, these stories. If you're not familiar with them, uh, they're kind of fantasy stories, sort of like, like Harry Potter or, or The Hobbit, right? Um, and in them, there, there's this, this great character, Aslan. He's, he's the, the great lion, the king of Narnia. Uh, he's, he's the Christ figure. I mean, not unlike uh, Gandalf or, or Dumbledore. I mean, that's sort of his, his role in here. And we're, we're reading the uh, the Silver Chair, um, which I'd totally forgotten about, um, but have loved going back and, and, and reading it. And the Silver Chair is, starts off, and Aslan puts these children on a quest to find the lost prince. And, and so they go off, and, and Aslan had told them how it was going to happen, how they were going to find him. He gave them four signs, Aslan did, to the kids. Four signs that they have to remember and obey. And, and right around in the middle of the book, which is where, where we're at, so I don't really know how it's going to end. I don't remember. Um, they, they get through the first of the three signs. When they stumble upon this, this young knight. Okay, and the knight tells them that he's under an enchantment. Okay, this is going somewhere. Hold on. Uh, he, that he's under an enchantment. This isn't just story time. Um, where, where one hour every day, he loses himself. And he becomes this sort of enraged character and that, that if he's not tied up, he will destroy the children. And he, and he promises the kids as that hour comes that you, you've got to tie me up. And no matter what I say, no matter what I do, you cannot untie me or I will devour you. Your lives are, are gone. So they tie him up. And they agree, we're not going to untie him for anything. And, and then that hour comes. But in that hour, the, the, the night, he, he becomes somebody completely different. And, and in fact, he's saying that he's the good one. And it's the other one, the other 23 hours a day who's, who's in an enchantment, who, who can't be trusted, and, and he begs and pleads with the kids to untie him. And he's nice and kind and, and gentle, and now they're conflicted. Which one of them is telling the truth, right? They have no way of knowing. There's no way they're going to untie him. Until all at once, suddenly, the knight calls out, release me in the name of Aslan which was the fourth sign. Aslan had told the kids that, that when someone, the first person who says, do something in my name, you're supposed to trust that person. Now what do they do? Because they're still conflicted. And, and they're pretty convinced that this, this person, he's, he's going to devour them. 
that they, they have no, no hope. I mean, how could Aslan possibly know that he could be trusted? We could be devoured, and they argue together. Let me read some of it. It says, only if we knew, said Jill. I think we do know, said Puddleglum. Do you mean you think everything will come right if we untie him? I don't know about that, said Puddleglum. You see, Aslan didn't tell us what would happen. He only told us what to do. That fellow might be the death of us once he's up, but that doesn't let us off trusting Aslan. I love that. Because it's, it's in pain and agony with great difficulty that they say, yes, let's, let's untie him. Aslan's never been wrong and he's never once let them down. And even though it has never been easy, what else can they hold on to? You see, trust is an anchor. And really, this is where the author has been taking us this whole time. Back to Jesus. Our, our refuge, our anchor, our, our forerunner, he says, our hope, the great high priest, the greatest promise God ever made is Jesus. Look at verse 18 again. It says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is our hope, it says. And, and the way we use the word hope is sort of like wishful thinking, right? We can say, I hope the Royals win the World Series, right? There's not a lot of basis for that. That's not biblical hope. Uh, biblical hope is, is rooted deeper than that. It's a confidence that God will come through in the future just as he's come through in the past. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we don't just have a promise to hold on to. He is our guarantee. God doesn't just give us his word. He gives us his son. He is our refuge, it says. A place of, of safety that we can run to. He's our anchor, which, which holds steadfast in the storm immovable, unshakable. He's our forerunner, it says. And he goes before us, that he conquered sin and, and death. He, he entered those things on our behalf and goes behind the place in the curtain, leading us into the presence of God. And that idea of forerunner, it's an interesting one, I think. Um, that word in the Greek is only used here in the entire Bible. Uh, it's used in other parts of, of Greek literature uh, to refer to a smaller boat that leads a larger boat into the harbor. So for, for example, if, if there's a, a storm or, or you know, the, the larger ship is unable for some reason to make it into the harbor, it would send this little boat first, and it would actually give the little boat its anchor, still tied to the large ship. And it would go into the harbor, and it would drop anchor for the larger ship, guaranteeing that the, that the other ship would eventually be able to make it safely in. And the author said, that's, that's what Jesus is for us. He has gone through these things first, and he takes us with. And even, even though we feel maybe stuck out in the sea, right? The storm's still raging. Where we're headed is guaranteed. So let me ask again. What are you holding on to? Not what should you be holding on to. Or what you hope one day you'll be able to hold on to. But what are you holding on to? And, and what, what will you be left holding on to 
after the storm. We're all holding on to something, something that we believe makes our lives worth living. And I run to these things time and time again, right, as an escape, as a, as a little bit of a, of, a, of a refuge, whether it's food or TV or sex or money, anything that can possibly distract us. And the author here, he's, he's not just saying buck up, you know, trust, trust better, get over it, get over your problem. That's not, that's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's saying there's a better way to escape. There's a better comfort in the storm, a more secure refuge, an anchor for the soul. The trouble is for me, I'm just not very good at holding on, truthfully. Because my faith oftentimes feels so weak, so inadequate. And yet it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. I mean, just, just imagine, we've, we've done this a little bit throughout this series in Hebrews, right? The metaphor of drifting is, is all throughout, but imagine yourself lost at sea. You know, you're, you're swimming, and all of a sudden a storm comes in, it's dark, you can't see the shore anymore, you don't know where you're at, the waves are coming and are crashing around you, you're all alone, and you're losing your strength. I mean, you've been swimming like crazy, but you don't even know the direction you're headed anymore. And you know that on your own, you are lost, there's no possible chance that you'll survive. But then imagine, out of the corner of your eye, you see a, a buoy floating there. It's got a rope next to it. And you know nothing about the buoy, frankly. You have, you have no, no understanding of whether or not that thing has any power to save you whatsoever. I mean, for all you know, could, that, that rope could be torn, and it could just sweep you out farther and farther into, into sea to an even worse and slower death. Your trust that that buoy can save you is lousy still you grab onto it because there it is right and some hope can be found and even though you don't realize it it's anchored deep and the rope is strong and so you grab on it doesn't matter how strong your faith is just so you have, you have enough faith to hold on That's how strong the object of our faith is. This this Jesus that we serve, for we have him as our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We will all hold on to something. Every one of us. So what do you hold on to? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as I just said, I know how weak and inadequate my faith is. And so God, I am so thankful that it's, it's not the strength of my faith, it's not the, my ability to hold on, but your ability to hold us fast. So God, I pray that we would come to you as a people together in faith, that we would hold on to you, that we'd let go of the other things, even as as Hebrews says later, that we would run the race that is set before us, that we would cast off all the things that entangle us, and that we'd hold on to you as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. So give us comfort, God, especially those who are hurting, who feel like they've been waiting forever. God, give us joy in your presence, knowing that, that you keep us secure, that you are all that we need. And God, for those who don't know you, 
God, I pray that they would, even in this moment, that they would see your love, that they would see that we as a church love them and long for them to experience the life and the joy that you welcome us into through Jesus. So God, be with us now as we pray and as we continue our time with worship. We ask this for the glory of your son, Jesus.